Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey, Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. So, Tori. Yes. <laughs> how, how is your playwright career going? It's going well. And a lot of that has to do with putting the work in, submitting, sitting down and making sure that uh, these plays, these little imaginations that that were only, what am I trying to say? I'm the only one who was, you know, sitting with these characters. So I had to find a way to send them out into the universe. I really hunkered down and just started foo, 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 submitting. I, I, I really took the time to dedicate that because that's a part of playwriting too. Because once you write the play, your work is not done unless you are published and famous. And <laughs> we are really, your work is not done until you, uh, I, okay. I'm going to have to disagree with you on, on, published and famous um but i do believe that you should probably at least well no but if you're not putting it out there yes yeah and yet if you're not like sending it to someone with the possibility of hearing those words out loud but what i'm saying is if somebody is famous they might have more resources than yeah than me in san diego i just wouldn't want i wouldn't want to put the message out there that if you are not published and famous right you you are not worth a lick of salt because who gets to decide who gets published and who gets to be famous i've been thinking about this Mm -hmm. and this is a question that i want to start asking people is like what is how do you define success like, what is, if you are a successful playwright, like, what does that mean? So what does that mean to you, Tori? What does it mean to be a successful playwright for you? I don't know. It's too early in the morning for me to answer a question oh, like that. Oh, come on, really? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think it changes depending on where I feel I am at in my own process. Honestly. I, I, that is totally fair. That's, that, yeah. makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Like last night, I felt, I felt successful because I was having a reading with some talented actors. I was getting to hear my work out loud, which is, I mean, why else do we do this? Right. Right. Because we are, we are wanting to make connections and build community. I mean, that's what it is for me. That's what theater is for me. And so last night I felt successful, but then there's moments and you know what, Mabel, I think some of it has to do when I am not focusing on my craft, when I am instead focusing on somebody else's success and going, well, why can't I do that thing? Well, then I'm not being successful. I'm just being, you know, I'm like self-sabotaging because yeah. the, the way for me to feel like I am moving forward is to constantly be doing something, Yeah, whether it's writing or sending scripts out that have already been written or doing a reading, you know, and, and we have learned on this podcast. I mean, it's something that I think we bo- both knew, but it just keeps getting reinforced. You really have to make it happen for yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. You really have to build your community and get those actors together and reach out to producers and directors. It is not going to happen with you sitting behind a desk or y- y- you have to you have to make it happen. And you know what? I, I said that thing kind of offhanded about being published and um, being famous. And I do believe, hey, if you're if you're famous, you have more resources, right? Mm-hmm. You have more people you can call them. But 
they started somewhere. Right. <laughs> yep. They started somewhere building their community. And again, it's building your community. What I write is not going to speak to everyone. Right. So I I need to find those people that it speaks to. It speaks to me, Tori. It speaks <laughs> to me. Your yeah. work speaks to me. What about yeah. you, Mabel? What how do you define it? And what are what are you working on? Where are you at in your process? So it's interesting because I, I totally agree with you. It's like it depends on the day, right? It depends mm-hmm. on how things are going. But I have felt the most exhilarating sense of victory when I have had a reading where there were only five people in the room, you know, where it was like just the actors and and maybe a dramaturg or a director and like and just hearing it that way and knowing that the actors connected to it like that to me, it was just like, oh my gosh, like that has given me such a sense of satisfaction more so than having, um, well, I mean, like, you know, seeing my plays produced is, is, is really cool, but like, I just, those moments, those intimate moments that I get to bear witness to, and it was because of something that I wrote. Oh my gosh. So I don't, so I definitely don't, um, for me, success is definitely not defined by, by publishing or fame. Cause I'm like, it's just not <laughs> the, the kind of work that I do is is not the kind of work that is ever going to be the work that makes me famous. But that's OK, because I know that that is, you know, I'm I'm all about community based theater and I'm all about mm-hmm. using theater as a tool for social justice and activism and all of that. And that's just not going to get me to Broadway, which is total, which is fine, because though I love uh, watching big shows. I, you know, I love it. it. It's not, I don't love that kind of work. I don't love the compromises that need to be made. Um, yeah. So, so that's where I'm at in my, in my life, but I'm, but I'm really excited about the the work that I'm doing right now. Every piece that I'm working on right now is, brings me joy. And, and because I'm doing theater for young audiences work right now, like I just, it's my jam. I'm so excited about exploring that. But to your point, we write, we write to get the work heard. Um, and so, so I think it's really important to, like you said, you have to put yourself out there and you have to be submitting. There are so many great opportunities out there and you could be right. You had, could have the best play sitting on your hard drive. I think that's the thing. It's like, yes, submit, but also if you're not getting bites, you know, and people are not asking for your work, like don't wait for the world to come to you. Like you go and uh, find your people. My God, how many times have we workshopped our own stuff with our own kids? Right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, and let me just say, listeners, you doing that with your own kids, they will tell you they they you. are honest. They are definitely, <laughs> definitely honest. They are the best. They are the best dramaturgs. Yep. For sure. Yep. Yeah. You know, something you just said really spoke to me too. And I think it. Uh, I would agree with you. I mean, I, that's the same kind of work that I love to do. And, and that um, I don't picture my writing being on Broadway either because I like the intimacy. I like immersive theater. I like um, doing site-specific work. I like community-based theater. I I completely agree with you. But it reminds me of, um, and this is a shout out to my friends, Celia and Cecilia. Uh, they um, knit and, and do beautiful embroidery and just are amazing. But 
they are so gifted and talented. They were actually approached by a magazine to have a spread and do classes to showcase their work and sell their creations. But they turned it down because they do it because it brings them joy. And that felt like it was going to turn into work and not you know, it, that it would defeat the purpose of why they were doing it. And I think what you said about Broadway and all of the compromises that you would have to make in order to see that thing that started as something out of your heart, you know, suddenly have to be changed to meet the commercial demands or whatever. Yeah. I mean, haven't we heard that from some established playwrights? We've heard that, right? We've that, that. Yeah. That suddenly you are making compromises that you would not have wanted to make in your work because it, the pro the producers are saying, we need that, we need this or we need that, you know? Yep. Mm -hmm. well, you, what you just said about, about your friends reminded me of that, that story of the fisherman who was, who was fishing on the beach. And then this guy is on vacation and he comes up to him and he's like, Hey, you know, you, you should get a bigger boat. And the guy's like, why would I need a bigger boat? Oh, so you can catch more fish. And uh, so why would I want to catch more fish so that you don't, you know, so you can make more money. Why do I need to make more money so that, you know, you eventually don't have to work and like, well, then what would I be doing? He's like, yo, you could just like hang out on the beach and like, just go fishing. That's <laughs> like, yeah. But that's what, what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what is it that you really want? I think that that it is important to continue to find the joy in what you are doing, whether it's fishing or playwriting. Playwriting. Yes. <laughs> but ultimately, like, what do we want? We just want to tell stories, right? We just want to. Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell you, our next guest is an incredible storyteller and creative and educator. Lucy Wong is an award-winning published produced writer comic. She has performed stand-up and two one-woman shows to sold-out audiences. Her manuscripts are archived at the Huntington Library and UC Santa Barbara. Lucy mentors privately and teaches at eScript.ws and Dramatist Guild Institute. She is a co-founder of Honor Roll, June 2018, and serves on the executive committee. Lucy, welcome to Hey Playwright. Thank you, Tori. It was such a joy to meet you. And I'm so glad. It's so great to be described as a badass. Yay! <laughs> she, she, she literally texted me and was like, Lucy is such a badass. <laughs> I, I think that's what I should have said, you know, when you're in high school and they go, what do you want to grow up to be? Just forget doctor, physician, whatever, just badass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. And and I say that and, and not lightly. I really mean it, you know. Um, you do so many things in not just in the theater, but in life. So you are an activist, you and you write for many different genres, not just for theater. So I find that compelling and interesting. And um, one thing I will say about the way that you brought us together in the class that you taught and the class was the class was called um writing to win place or show and you cultivated just a wonderful uh, environment where we all felt safe and we felt like we could take risks and that is hard to do 
And you did it. And we we enjoyed each other's company so much that we now have our own little group where we meet, you know, on Facebook. So so that that was you. And and that just is a testament to you as a an inspiration, as a, a playwright, a leader and someone who is just constantly helping to lift others up. I think that's you have a superpower there. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Tori. Next time I need an introduction, may I call you? I don't know. <laughs> I have a letter of introduction. I think I'm just going to, Tori. <laughs> um, I, that's, that's great. I think a lot of it is, you know, you know, that terrible, it's a myth and a curse and everything is um, the Asian tiger parent. I was like, you know how um, Doug Wright wrote, I am my own wife. I am my own super tiger mom which is bad, but I think it was ingrained in me when we moved to this country because I came to America when I was two and we came during the Vietnam War. And, you know, every night on the news, you'd see um, Vietnamese getting gunned down, shot, killed. And later when I grew up, because of course I didn't understand it when I was growing up, I was subject to the racism, but I didn't understand why, because I'm not Vietnamese, I'm not killing Americans, I'm not against democracy. (laughs) um, People go, what the hell was your dad thinking coming to America during the Vietnam War? <laughs> it's a, not a good time to go to America. <laughs> and, um, I think I've always felt this pressure to make our uh, voyage to America worth it. And so that mm. meant, oh, I've got to excel. I can't do anything haphazardly. But it's also a trap, right? It's like, oh, I don't want to go bowling because if I suck at bowling, people will think Asian people can't bowl. <laughs> oh, my God. Really, really silly things. So it's sort of self-imposed, but it's also imposed by my father. Like, that's why I became a writer late, later in life, is um, he would say, and my, but when my, mo- they, my mother and when they were still together, they would say, we didn't come to America for you to be a starving artist. We had to leave you in China for that. So, I was, you know, even though I love the arts. And, you know, I love to do things like, you know, off the beaten path. My parents were like, kept me on a very tight leash. And growing up in, in a place where people call you gook, I real I thought, well, maybe they're right. I, I better follow the strict and narrow path. I have to represent. And, and then later you learn that artists um, are kind of in a failure driven business. I realized that baseball and art are so similar. Like if you bat, my husband likes to tell me this because sometimes I would get down. It's like, oh, I've done so much. And yet why when somebody passes or I get rejection, I'm still like, you know, uh, my heart sinks and I feel like, ooh, should I, what, why, why? I feel like a loser. Why do I feel like a loser? And then, well, what? he's a big baseball fan. He's always been a Mets fan. And, um, We'll watch baseball. And he told me that if you bet bat three out of 10 times, you get into the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And so that began my rewiring of thinking. And I thought, well, how? That's that's incredible. So that means if I keep submitting and I get three or more out of 10 acceptances, maybe I'm going to end up in the Hall of Fame. And then I thought, well, how can I keep my spirits up? And that's why I have the writing to win place or show, right? I thought, well, what if you take some of your writing and you, because that's all we can control. We can't really control people's reaction to our writing, but we can control where we send it out and how we might package it to increase our chances of winning, you know? 
And maybe you wrote something as a play that could be a memoir, or you could take a paragraph or a monologue, enter it somewhere else. And then you just increase your chances of what you believe inside, that your voice is worthy, that this piece has an audience besides one. <laughs> and, um, and it does really wonders because you see these baseball players too, like they get into a slump and sometimes they just seem to sink in further, but then they get that one home run. They start to excel again. So I, I feel like, you know, the arts is a failure driven business, but we could do something to increase our chances of winning. And remember three out of 10, you're going to be in the hall of fame. Gosh, I, I started to tear up when you were saying it because I totally, I I feel that. I mean, thank you. Thank you for that analogy. <laughs> like, I'm going to think about that now. So, I'm going to turn you into baseball fan. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. It, it sounded like you're talking about turning the no into a yes. Can yeah. you tell us more about that? Okay, well, one really good example that is, uh, direct no and yes is like, you know, when you're a person of color, sometimes you feel obligated. You have to write plays with people of color, or you're like betraying your people. And then, <laughs> if but if you do a lot of plays with even just one person of color, and you send your plays around, people will say to you, and this is TV and film too. It isn't just plays, but I know it's hey playwright. Um, People will say to you, oh, we cannot cast your play. I have been told by people that um, I will go nameless, but they will say, oh, maybe if we were looking for someone in chess club, or maybe if we threw a violin in the street, we could find some Asian Americans who might be willing to uh, be in your play. But you know, your people are always studying. Your people are playing violin or you're math nerds. And um, so I met Gloria Steinem in 2010 at Hedgebrook, and it's a writer retreat for women writers. So I totally recommend it. Anyways, I was complaining to Gloria over dinner, and she was like, Lucy, you have to take control of your destiny. Um, you then must perform in your own work. And I was like, oh, man, I do not want to do that. But I heard what she was saying. She's like, okay, if they're not going to do it, and they claim they can't find talented. Gloria always laughed at my jokes. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have your an icon, an idol that you, you know, laugh at all your jokes. And she told me she actually mistook me for a comedian. So you've got two deadly things here. You got like, okay, somebody telling you, don't complain, do something about it. And she's saying, you're really talented. You make me laugh. And she said, if there's anything that she would do over again, is she would go into comedy. And I'm like, oh my God, is she for real? <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, she thought I was a comedian. She didn't even think I was a playwright. <laughs> and so I, I took her advice. I wrote, I start, I took a comedy class because it's sort of like, well, if Gloria Steinem tells you to do something, you do it. And um, so I signed up with this class, which forced me to go on stage once a week. And, you know, nobody wants to, it's that thing that I just told you, I don't want to go up and fail. <laughs> and so I worked really, really hard. And I learned how hard it is to write a succinct, you know, joke. It's like, you have to really collapse it. And, um, and the laughs get infectious. And then I slowly built up my confidence. And I thought, well, all right, as an older uh, writer and comic, you know, I'm not, like one of those 20 year olds who want to go sleep in my car and go from city to city for five minutes. And again, so uh, how 
do I turn this to my advantage? And I used my playwriting credits to write a one-woman show. And then I got interest to doing it. And I thought, this is way better than going to open mic for three to five minutes, right? I get an hour of my own. <laughs> so that's kind of what I mean by turning a no. And it's all because people said to me they couldn't find talent across the country. And Gloria Steinem says, well, you have a choice. <laughs> and I, it was not an easy choice by any means, but it's a choice. That's incredible. And that is such a great example. I, wow. Um, and and you are now getting ready to teach other people how to craft a one-person show, right? That's right. So I told the Dramatist Guild Institute that, and they said, well, this fall, we'd like you to teach singular sensation, writing the one-person show. And I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. So yeah, that's what I mean. Like, so no to yes to yes. And then like, what? this is another yes that I haven't yet done that because every time you switch genres, you have to learn a new craft or, you know, not, not from scratch necessarily, but there are different rules for every genre. And one person who came to one of my one woman show said that would be a great memoir, you know, and I'm like, Oh no, should I write? Should I, because I don't always want to perform. It's very time consuming when you perform, you have to wear a different hat, you know? And I thought, wow, should I explore trying to figure out how to write these into like David Sedaris kind of, or, you know, Tiffany Haddish type of funny essays and make that a memoir. And um, so there's there's another avenue of yes, that maybe I can go. I'm not saying there won't be no's along the way, but you know, turning no into yes is um, is a good way to keep you motivated. I, I would say so. Good way to live in general, right? Yes, because we're always going to get a no somewhere, right? We can't, that's the, that's the paradox of being an artist. They tell you to be true to yourself, but you can't be true only to yourself because then your work lives on your shelf or in your computer, right? So you have to appeal to somebody or you want it to. But, now, if, you, but if you appeal to everybody, that's impossible. When you're doing your one woman show or when you were developing it, were you aligned with a theater already or were you self-producing? Like, did you put it together and then you had the show ready to be mounted somewhere? No, I did it completely on my own. I did I did the bits from the stand-up comedy class. So I, I would practice the bits there. And then when I didn't um, want to do it there because it was a different kind of audience, you know, I would practice my bits at the gym, to tell you the truth. I used to work before COVID. I used to train three times a week because I tell you, doing a one-person show, you need to be in good physical condition, Um so I kudos to all those stand-up comics who travel all over the place, get up in a hotel they've never been or a city they've never been to at a hotel and go up and do it. So I would practice my bits at the gym. And I thought this is sort of like an everyman audience. Um, there are some people in there who've never heard of me. Don't give a crap about theater. But if I can make them laugh. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm trying to picture that. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us how you were practicing. Yeah. So are you like saying that people would be like like, powerlifting and you would just like come up to them and. Yeah. Yes. I'd be doing lunges across the gym or right after it. And um, I practice some of my jokes because, you know, when you do it three times a week, you need conversation between you and your trainer. And and 
you become a family. It was a small private gym. So I have to add that. It wasn't like Gold's gym or something. So everybody was kind of familiar. Oh, yeah, you're the three o'clock on Fridays. You're the, and so they would naturally ask you, what are you doing? And I would tell them, and I said, and I, they would love me to practice their jokes. You know, they said, uh, but yes, that's how I knew. I'd be on the treadmill or doing lunges or uh, leg lifts. <laughs> And if they laughed, you know, that's that's the one thing that Gloria taught me, too, is that laughter is revolutionary. And the reason she said that was like, you can't force somebody to think something is funny. So, you know, if you laugh, that's that, you know, pure joy. And that's what I loved about my stand up comedy class, too. And it's like there's this uh, I'm sure you've run up against it. You know, women aren't as funny as men. And it's just not true. And if you if they laugh. They can't say that about you anymore, you know. <laughs> just, you know it's like, and you know, you realize when you do comedy, the biggest compliment is when someone says they almost peed or they peed in their pants. You're like, I made a grown person pee in their pants. <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel I feel like that. I, I feel like you have another routine right here, especially <laughs> the image of you doing the workout while you're working out your jokes, like literally that is so funny, Lucy. All right. I, mean, I, can, already, I can already see you doing, doing. It's funny, but it's like double the workout because you're working out while you're telling these jokes. That is, that's not easy from an athletic standpoint. I find that to be very impressive. Just saying. Yes. Yeah, so I better go back to the gym. See COVID is, uh, yeah. Uh, COVID is, Sideline me like everybody else, but I wrote, I wrote that down, Tori, that I should make a bit about me working out with some weights, telling a joke. I can already see how it's going to look, though. Like it's got a there's a visual. <laughs> <laughs> is it a one thing, Tori, or is it two? <laughs> no, no, I think you can do it. Do what you're doing because you just telling us is that's funny. It made going to the gym fun. I tell you that. It's like, oh, I'm going to test this out today. <laughs> One thing that we really wanted to talk to you about is your involvement in the creation of Honor Roll. Because for me, I have hit the point in my life where, you know, I'm going through menopause. And so I, I'm becoming invisible, or what yeah. society is starting to has deemed women of a certain age to be invisible. <laughs> You know, and and just uh, going, well, I still have a voice. I'm right. still here. I always have been here. And, you know, it's it's for women in general. It's always been challenge more challenging anyway. Right. I started out um, as a bond trader and then I worked as deputy chief of staff for Mayor Dinkins of New York City, the first African-American mayor in New York City. And now we got two, Eric Adams. But um. So I came to writing late. And so it was very weird for me to be told by people that I've, I maybe I've aged out like that. You know, I sold a pilot to television, but it took me like two years because people said, oh, we don't want to meet with you because, you know, you didn't start out as staff and, you know, people your age, they're already executive producer or supervisor. And I'm like, what? Um, you know, nobody told Pablo Picasso, you know, you're over a certain age. We just not interested in your paintings anymore. Right. <laughs> well, right? You, you know, just, well, 
have a yard sale, Claude Monet. (laughs) I don't know why they tell women this. So I, and because of the pandemic, I started noticing, or maybe it was, we started at June, 2018. So it was actually pre-pandemic, but I think we gained a lot of steam because people were stuck at home on their computers and social media certainly became a way of community and connection. But um, someone uh, posted a social media rant around June 5th, 2018, about how like she wasn't getting read. She was told she was over the hill, invisible. And she was really worried because there's a new generation behind us that are the world is a little bit more woke. And so they're now open to certain voices. But that doesn't mean they're open to people, let's say, over 40 women over 40. So uh Jackie Reingold and I signed on to be moderators or admins of this Facebook page called Honor Roll. And uh, we met, I think, uh, let's say we started in June and then in August or something, we had a big meeting and um, a volunteer, Susan Miller, who's a wonderful playwright, she volunteered her apartment. We all met there. It was like completely filled to capacity. We had to turn people away because she could only have so many people at our house safely, right? And um, we started making lists of priorities and try to fashion a mission statement. I'll try to read you our mission statement right now. So I get it right. I'm going to go to the page. Honor Roll is an advocacy and action group of women plus playwrights over 40, as well as our women plus over 40 allies. And the term women refers to a spectrum of gender identification that includes women, non-binary identifiers, and trans. So we're fighting for more inclusion for everybody. And one of when we band together, you realize um, collective action is the only way to change things. It, it reminded me of the um, Howard Beale and Network. Once we gained a momentum, we, I felt like saying, get, oh, to, because we couldn't, uh, we're not on the same city, but we were all going to get on our computers, we're going to write somebody a letter, and we're going to say, we're not going to take it anymore. We're bad as hell. We're not going to take yes. it. Go to your computer, write somebody today, and tell them. <laughs> the age mandatory requirement off. Do this, do that. And, and, you know, we got a number of people to take off their age mandatory requirement. God, and I, I did notice, I don't know if you've noticed this too. I urge uh, people to do it just to see. So we have numbers. I mean, we don't even rate enough for a lot of research to be done about this. So sometimes people challenge us. Well, how do you know you're being excluded? You know, um, is it anecdotal evidence? And so, being in this group kind of helps us uh, have a base, like pe- we can collect information. So one of the things I did, because I think most playwrights do this anyway, is you keep track of your submissions, right? That's right. That's so, right. So start keeping track like of your hits and misses, but keep track of your misses and your hits when age is asked as a question. Mm. And if there's an interesting trend. And I noticed that in blind competitions, I fare much better. So what does that tell you? Right. So um, now if everybody did this, then we could go to a theater and we've started to do this as a group too. You know, if a theater does not have any women playwrights in their season or women playwrights over 40, like maybe we don't buy tickets. We, you know, we're like, you know, women comprise most of the audience. They buy the ticket buyer. They're the ticket buyers. And, you know, maybe we have economic power. Um, A New York Times reviewer actually said during the pandemic, he had a list of like top 12, top 20 plays you must watch online or read during the pandemic and zero 
were by women and zero by women. What? Yes. We we did a campaign by social media and by letter writing the old fashioned way and Twitter. We and and there was a recant. He he added Larissa Fast Horse to the list. But you know, so that's what we have to do. And that's what I realized, you know, if you, we do it as a group. Just one. Yes, just yeah, one. Yeah, Larissa. Wow. Right. But uh, it's something, but. Right. But, but, not but yes, but not yes, enough. not enough. But also to the to, to to your credit, the work that was done that campaign, you know, so. Right. So there is so impact. It, yes. So unfortunately, it's work. But if you have enough people, I mean, work on our part. But if we have enough people, then maybe we don't have to do it. All the time, like, you know, Tori can write this letter. I'll write the next one or, or Tori plus 50. And then we have over 1300 people on the Facebook group and we have some people on Google groups because, um, you know, some people don't want understandably to be tied into the Zuckerberg right. <laughs> empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, if anybody listening wants to join, you can find Honor Roll on Facebook or Honor Roll Playwrights at gmail.com, you know, so join us and because together we can change, we can shift the pendulum and um, it, it's already happening. It needs to happen at a faster pace. And we're trying to read, we're also trying to redefine emerging, you know, emerging in the past or historically has been for playwrights in their twenties and thirties. And we're trying to change it. Emerging could mean anything. It could just mean like you're new to playwriting, but you started later and you're still discovering your voice. Why is emerging only a limited amount of time, right? And again, like I said, nobody said to uh, Faulkner or Mark Twain, you're too old, you're not funny anymore. And you can see it by like all these people who are like in their 70s and 80s, they're still selling out their concerts. You know, pe- people don't ne- um, aren't necessarily against it. You know, people are your fans for life. So why can't we have fans for life? Yeah. We can. We can. We do have fans for life. We need, just need the light. We don't want to be in the margins. Can you talk about the term sagism? Oh, yes. Uh, Sarah Tufton Honorable invented that term. She said sexism plus ageism equals sagism. <laughs> and I think that's really wonderful. You know? Uh, yeah. It's on the money. So kudos to Sarah for doing that. Uh, yes. It's, it's a great term. And then I don't know what you add for the racism. So we got to add a new one. Sex, sages, and rages. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's maybe it's sragism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's a good one. Yes, I should invent that one. Sorry. You should. You yeah. Yes, Lucy. It was invented here on Hey Playwright. So Lucy, um, what are your thoughts about the way that the technology has impacted the opportunities that are available to emerging playwrights who are not 20 and 30. Is it easier now, do you think, to create traction for yourself without the support of gatekeepers? You know, that is a very good question because often, you know, I hear just do it yourself, make your own web series. But see, there, I think um, if you're marginalized, you're usually not always, but sometimes money and production costs and traction is still very different. And like I just saw in the New York Times, I think it's this week, somebody's performing in their closet. They took out their closet and made it um, a stage. 
And I'm like, I thought that was really cool. And I thought, do I have a closet that I could perform my stand-up in? But still, you know, you've got the production cost, which I'm sure you know. Hey, playwright must cost you something. And then you got to get the word out. And that's that's the stumbling block. How do we get like major news outlets or media to say, hey, you guys should be listening to Hey Playwright. Hey, audience, listen to Hey Playwright. Hey, listen to Lucy in her closet doing the funny jokes. <laughs> listen to Tori. Listen to Bell. How? Where do we get the access? Because access is so important. I was listening to NPR the other day and they were doing an interview with Billie Jean King. And Billie Jean King said her father was a fireman. She didn't belong to any country club. They couldn't belong to any country club. And it was just uh, a friend of hers invited her to a country club and said, let's try this tennis thing out. She loved it, but she was like, how am I going to get tennis? I don't have any money. So I kind of feel like it's, it's very similar. It's like, okay, maybe you have internet access, but you still need a camera. You still need, I mean, cause now so many people have it. There's this pressure to have high bar of production values, right? If I do it like with unsteady cam or cheap equipment, it's not necessarily going to help me. And then I need, the power of friends to go viral. I mean, how do we go 3 million viral or 6 million viral, right? That's still a stumbling block. If you know the answer, let's teach that class. <laughs> I want to know, right? How to go, why, why do some um, like these beauty YouTube things, sometimes they have like 5 million views. It's like, and there's so. I should not have been studying how to be write a play. I should have learned how to do makeup. <laughs> um, toy unboxing. My kids would watch. Do you know what that is, Lucy? Like where they no. they they literally um are un like unboxing, opening up a toy package, and that wow. has five million that's views. That's a thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See that. You should get your kids to help you. <laughs> no, but Lucy, we gotta just we gotta come up with our own thing. We right. gotta and come up with a thing. Like Billy, so not- do you have a Billy Eilish in your house? I mean, oh yeah, she's yeah, famous making singing in her bedroom, right? Right. Not- <laughs> I would, I would love that. Let's let's start singing. <laughs> oh. I'll tell you what, I will be your fan, but nobody needs to hear me sing. (laughs) It is not, it is not good. But yeah, it's interesting what, what grabs viewers because the whole makeup thing, you know, my, my kiddo would watch some of these um, influencers and I would sit and watch with her and think this is not interesting. <laughs> this is, uh, they were so over the top and even like annoying. And yet millions of, and they have a, uh, what do you call it? Where they're being sent the free stuff. They have sponsors. Yes. Yes. They're being I'm flown all around. They're being flown to places so that they can, you know, Lovely. market. How do, we get on the, how do we get on this train so we can produce our show together? That's um, what we need. I didn't know we that even unboxing is that popular. Wow. Oh my gosh, it's so what, what and, are, and you the, don't even the, you don't even the, the person that's really popular doesn't even show her face. Oh so it's gosh. just her and her hands and and kids love it. They there's something about just unboxing the toy and talking about all the little people. I remember my kids used to watch Play-Doh unboxing video. So like a, a, a Play-Doh set. And it's just her hand, so you don't even see her face. So she could have a normal life. She could be 
the most powerful, you be a district attorney for all we know. We have no idea who she is. Wow. And she's just like, and and it comes with a pink Play-Doh and a blue Play-Doh. And, and oh my God. That's, that's it. Millions. That's you know millions what? Millions of views. Millions of followers. Start, I'm going to start recording myself unpacking my groceries, damn it. <laughs> That's what it's that, giving. That could be that could be a thing. That could that be. And I got the I couldn't find my specialty toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So right that there's too there's so much competition and I don't think I know the logic of what what goes viral and what does not and um I don't know. How about you? Are you doing any of this? Cuz maybe no, But is it is it appealing to you? Is that because it seems no. like these these personalities are a certain way they're very over the top sometimes i mean there's the the youtubers that my kids are into they're it's like it, like tori said some of them i don't want to knock anyone's art because that's who they right. are but but it's something that does not appeal to me and it's something that i would personally not be interested in um so i guess the question is what are you willing to do uh, for that kind of attention and is that is it worth it to me i've never been the cool kid i was never i, I wasn't cool when i was a teenager i'm clearly not cool now i was never no, popular you know i was always like counterculture like f you all in your like sheep um that, that was never my my jam it's it still isn't today to probably to a, a, a fault because i don't put myself out you know like i don't want to share my social media with anybody you don't need to know who i am you know like oh. and so like that doesn't help my career <laughs> but <laughs> but but i'm like but i'm okay with that you know i'm like ah. so i guess like so yeah so what are you willing to do to have that popularity that you know is and is that something that's interesting to you i don't know i guess i guess the answer is no i'm probably like you i feel like i've put myself out there so much i think also i miss live performance like doing comedy on zoom is not satisfying, you know, to have, we, I had a play in the West Hollywood, uh, gay pride, uh, LGBTQA, um, and it was a comedy and people were writing, you know, in the reaction, LOL hearts, but you know, you're trying to watch the show. I'm trying to support the direction and the acting, and I don't want to keep my focus down there, but it's not quite the same as hearing it. And I know it's not the same for the actors either. We are used to hearing the laughs and, you know, and then it, breathe spontaneity too. Like when you hear the laughs, you might change something or do, you know, hold that beat. And it just, I think that's part, partly why I don't do it is I miss the live communal experience. I miss, you know, people don't say in the chat box, I almost peed in my pants or I peed I in my pants. <laughs> Cause it's so, you know, it's so different. They have time to think about it. And, and it, when you're live, it just comes right out, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's a question of how much you want to spend your time, right? Uh, well, if I did that, then I'd be spending most of my time like sending my video to you say, please send to all your friends. And I would, I'd be OCD. I'd be like, oh my God, I only got one new view today. <laughs> and I feel like that time could be better spent writing. I, I would love, I've thought about doing like a web series. If I could get a director, a camera person and some actors, I'd love to have something, um, Originally, I was thinking about it before the pandemic. I was going to follow two artists. It was called Two Artists Trying to Pay Their Bill. It won Best Comedy, and it's in the 10-minute Best Comedy Plays. And I was going to do it Pan-Asian Rep, and COVID canceled that. But it's, I wanted to follow the series. So the, the play that won is the, like the pilot opener. And I wanted to show 
the adventures and struggles of two artists who are trying to get paid for their work and they're female. And I, I wanted to write it as a web series, but then the pandemic hit and I realized all the things that you're talking about. It's like, Oh my God, how much money is it going to cost me that we're going to have to all be safe and, and maybe now wear masks for the first few episodes or I was just, it just seemed like a huge undertaking and I'd rather write, you know, I don't know, but yeah. you know, everything's a risk. So if, if somebody came to me and said, you know, I, I will help you scout the locations, <laughs> maybe I'd be on board. Yeah, yeah. So that you could focus on your craft. Right. right. And then, right. I, Instead I totally ten, hear you with that. Right. Instead of supervising 10 jobs, if I could only have two of them. <laughs> See, and that's, that's the challenge I think with self-producing in general. We, we had talked with another playwright about that recently. Um, with a one woman show, it's a little easier, right? Because you're only worrying about yourself and maybe right. you've had a director um, help you shape the piece. But for the most part, it's up to you. It's like you and you and you, but it's just you. So you don't have to worry about getting actors and location. Right. And yeah. So yeah, that that's, I, oh, yeah. I hear you. I hear yeah. you when it comes to producing work that has more than just yeah. <laughs> the singular sensation. Right. And I directed a short film, you know, and I realized then and I think it was like a test to see if I really wanted to do that. There's a lot of babysitting and overview and your CEO and your writing and your it's a lot of headaches, a lot of joy, but a lot of headaches. And because mm -hmm. they go together. And oh, and answer your question for the one person shows. I got Akron Civic Center to do it. I got Pacific um, Asian. No, let's see. Um, um, what's the theater in New York? Pan Asian repertory to um, accept me to do the show. So I did not self-produce, but I did have to, as you pointed out, make sure that I could perform that my voice, you know, I've never babied my voice so much before a show because I realized Pavarotti, you know, he used to get sick and have to cancel a show. That's the bad thing. And when you're a one person show, if you get sick, <laughs> there's nobody to do it yeah nobody to do it so you gotta like live in water live in water live in water go to bed early mm -hmm. you know, all those all those things you were supposed to do as a kid you know <laughs> so the the one question that i had because it's it's hard right we talk about we talked about this a bit um before is like how to how to stay motivated and how to like shut out the the doubting voices in your head like to keep going so what advice do you have for that or what works for you to just like not you know you keep getting rejection 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 and like what makes you not quit and say oh i'm gonna go back to finance or <laughs> right. i'm exclusively gonna focus on you know medical journal writing right what, what is what keeps you going Oh, I, I think it's a number of things. I would first of all say diversify your interests if you can. Um, the people who have no hobbies or no interests, I feel really bad for them because then they're all in one basket. So I have a number of ways. And one, one is um, remember all the things that you did win that you never thought you would win. Like today during this interview, I'm wearing my Kennedy Center Award winning shirt. Just give me a boost of confidence. And um Sometimes I remember that. It's like, you know, there was a time when I switched from finance to writing that nobody would read my plays. They even told me that at parties. What, remember parties? <laughs> and and they, I would say, they would say, nobody with an MBA in finance from UChicago has anything that I would 
find interesting to read because, you know, the stereotype is you're a finance person and you work on Wall Street, you know, you're an asshole. <laughs> so I would get told that all the time. And so I would say, think of the things and maybe have it ready in a basket or put it on the wall. Call it the wall fame instead of the hall of fame, wall of fame. You look at that wall every time you're feeling down like, yeah, I never thought I could do that. Or people said I was crazy or I never win or I had no interesting voice. And guess what? I won. Ha ha. <laughs> and the other thing I learned was music. People told me I read William Styron's Darkness Visible because at one point he was very suicidal. And then he he wrote in his um, essays that music has a direct connection. And that is why we cry so much at the movies. It isn't, you know, sometimes I go and go, I don't want to cry. I don't want to cry. But then the music comes in and I'm a crying before the word of dialogue is even spoken. <laughs> you, know? Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to break up or somebody's going to die. And the music tells you that. And um so they, my other advice is music. Put on your favorite music. It'll lift you up. Um, it, 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 it's very quick. It's like instantaneous, I find, if you listen to music. And then the other thing is I looked at uh, adult role models, but people like Oprah, people who had really overcome really difficult obstacles. And I always say to myself, you know what? They didn't quit. So I can't quit. They can't mm -hmm. quit. I may not be. I wish I were Oprah Winfrey or Rich is Oprah Winfrey. But, you know, look at their obstacles and how far they come. A lot of the people in the civil rights movement, that's what I look at. I, I go, oh, my God, how how did John Lewis go get mm. beat up and then become, you know, this this monument and icon of civil rights? How did Gloria Steinem, who grew up poor, and her father and mother divorced. How did she end up being, you know, such a monumental force in the feminist movement? So that's the other thing I do. I, I bootstrap with other people, but realistic people, not people who are born with silver spoon in their mouth. Oh, right. And right. I look at people who overcame really, really difficult circumstances. And in my A's for American YouTube, you, you know, I mentioned Norman Mineta. Yes. How do you go to Japanese internment camp and come out positive and still speaking? Because I worked with some students whose relatives like grandfathers or grandmothers went to Japanese internment camp. And when they came out, they were the light had gone out of them. You know, they stopped speaking, mm -hmm. stopped hoping. So I look at those two as like, oh, my God, how how did they get out of that? And they're not bitter. You know, they're positive forces, positive lights. So yeah. those are the things, music, friends, you know, just get out of the house. My best advice is if you feel pummeled, get out of the house, reach out to someone, a music. And if you can't get out of the house because of COVID, you know, uh, pull out your, look at your wall of fame uh, or make a wall of fame and say, you know, I did this and no one thought everyone was against me, but I did it, damn it. <laughs> Yeah, and it doesn't have to be something huge, right? No, it can it be, doesn't. yeah, it's a, a small victories, I no. think. Like I'm hearing that, like um, appreciating the, the, like we all have them. I think everyone listening has has a victory. Yes, they all have a victories and they don't all have to be writing. It can be, you know, mm -hmm. overcoming grief and car accident, whatever, or someone who said something terrible to you. But, the, but we all have the things that we're most proud of in life. And I think that's when we have to start thinking about that and saying, yeah, I overcame the odds and I'm going to overcome them again. 
It's the law of gravity reversed. What goes down must come up. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Again with the visual. <laughs> Go to the gym, people. Go try Go to the gym. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. I'm not as athletic as some people, but I, I'm told, you know, that getting your endorphins up is a tremendous help. Yeah, we keep hearing that. We keep right. hearing that, right? Right. That, the, the exercise, uh, doing yeah. the, you know, just getting, just walking even, you know, getting yeah. out and walking. Yeah. So. Yeah. What is it that it's scientifically proven that there is a connection between um, movement Yes. Exercise and and brain function. Yes. Like it does get you, it gets your wheels turning. Um, and it, I don't think it's just about the endorphins, right? I mean, there is something chemical happening, but it, it can help you work through things that you're struggling with. It's, it's something about getting the body right. moving, helps the thoughts to move as well. And I have definitely found that to be true. So sometimes I do that when I'm thinking of a story. Yeah. I just make sure I have my phone so I can put the note in my phone. Oh, I like good. to keep it so I got my little note taker. I just was part of a group of, I think, 28 playwrights. We did walking plays because we realized during COVID, walking really helped us. So our goal was to pick a neighborhood or route. So this could be a prompt for anybody listening. Ooh. If you're going on a walk, pick, pick a place or a story that would accompany the walk. And then we had to have a map that goes with our play. And of course, I didn't want anyone to know where I live. I still don't. <laughs> don't come visit me. Because you know, <laughs> internet and privacy is another issue. Right. Not to go around. right. So I picked a walk that I thought was um, stimulating and I had a lot of memories with. And I mapped out what could happen in these four blocks or whatever, five blocks. And I wrote a play. So that's, that's a wonderful prompt because it gets you outside and you start... And when you're researching, you start to notice things that maybe you didn't notice before or you took for granted, right? Like, oh, this, even a, a cactus flower. You're like, oh my God, it's open, <laughs> you know, and maybe I'll sniff it. And um, I suggest that when you go on your walk, task yourself with, I'm going to write a play about this walk. And so it could be audio or it could be performed, you know, live. That's a great prompt. So Tori. We are now moving on to the asking for a friend oh. segment and you okay. have a wonderful question for Lucy. Uh oh. Yes. Okay. Here we go. All right, Lucy. Yes. It, if you could be immortal. Oh. What age would you choose to stop aging at and why? Oh, I think this is bad because uh, the honor roll I have to choose an age <laughs> over 40. <laughs> so I'm just going to I know, gosh, uh, I'll choose, in that case, I'll choose 41, just one age over 40. <laughs> yes. So how's that? This way I can and, continue. The, and, and why? And why, so why would you choose 41? So I can continue the fight for as long as possible for women over 40. How's that? I guess because I don't really have a good reason. Um, and now that I'm very active in this group, when I see that 40 is a major cutoff point, I, I guess I just say one over 40 to to keep up the fight. Yeah, you'll be immortal. So you'll be able to do right. it for eternity. Right. Yes. <laughs> and I'll be around to see what progress we made. Because see, that's I think that's also a fear like, oh, will I make all this progress and I'll be, you know, six feet under. I mean, mm. right. I think that's why a lot of people 
you know, uh, don't believe in climate change. They're thinking, I'm not going to be here. Well, we should still give a hoot. (laughs) Right. But I think, again, um, something you said earlier, maybe looking even right now at the victories, you know, yes, getting even one woman added to that list. Right. That's a victory. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. All right. That was a tough one, Tori. <laughs> yeah. It was a tough one when I read it, too. I went, ooh, yeah. But again, I, thinking about that question, then you have the knowledge. Because Mabel and I were talking about how, uh, you know, applying. I, I had thought about going back to school. Yes. But then I was reading an article where you talked about somebody telling you that you would not get into Juilliard if you applied because of your age. Yeah. And and there it was things like that for myself, even before reading that, what, what happened to you, that I thought, well, do I really want to put myself through that? I really want to learn. I feel like I could contribute. I feel like I'm in such a stronger place than when I got my master's when I was right. young and in my 20s. But now I feel like, oh, my gosh, I would be just a much more valuable member of that academic community. And you would be because you have all these life experiences and you've seen the world. I mean, when I think of things I want to read and I'm drawn to is like the point of view, right? Oh, my God, this is a voice I've never or an experience or voice that I haven't read before that's new to me. And how do you get new to me if you only allow one segment of the population to come in or only looking for a certain profile. And yeah, when I got into Columbia and I had to interview, I actually started the MFA program at Columbia. They did take me in and they were, they were like, Oh, do you think you're too set in your ways? Like, and I think they were afraid that, you know, I wouldn't listen to the professor because I'd be like, Oh, I'm, I'm too old to be told how to, how to think about this and or to take orders. But I've always been a good student. You know, I when I want to learn something, if I really want to excel in it, I, I will learn. It isn't about age. It's about interest. And I remember when I finally did get some, I had to drop out of Columbia because they did not allow you to have productions at the same time as being in an MFA program. And I, oh. yes. And Ron, because they had tech, you had to work on student productions. And and so you had your course curriculum and you had a certain number of hours you had to put in, like doing the lights, striking the set, costume, building the sets, painting. You know, Even if you're not good at painting, you have to paint the scenery. <laughs> and um, I remember having this dilemma because I looked to Romulus Linney and I said, what do I do? And Romulus Linney said, Lucy, run, run as fast as you can for as long as Romulus Linney. Yes, Romulus Linney (laughs) said that to me. And he said that because productions are so hard to get and you don't know that yet because you just got them and I don't want to rock your boat or rock your, you kill your dream, but someday they could dry out or you'll go through an up and down cycle and you regret you gave it up to do tech at Columbia University. (laughs) And and I got to tell you, the people I would have graduated with, you know, we all have up and down careers. So I also saw that just because you got an MFA from Columbia in theater didn't mean you're going to be ahead of me in number right. of productions awards. I know. I don't want to make it a rat race like zero sum. I want us to feel inclusive. Like, yes, Tori, you can be a great writer and I can be a great writer and my bell can be a great writer. We don't have to undercut each other. <laughs> That's right. Right. 
And that's what honor rolls is teaching me too. I think it's like, you know, you're a certain age, you realize it's not a zero sum. We don't have to hate each other. Just because the theater only chooses one woman doesn't mean I have to go, oh, I don't like you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The answer is they should do two women, three women, four women, you know, not, you know, not choose between us and make us dislike each other's work. It's so important, though. And that's why I love that you are involved and one of the creators, right? Yeah, I'm the founders of I'm one of the original founders, the June 5th, 2018 thing. But I wanted to make sure that I honor the rest of my honorable executive board committee members because we've all worked. Oh, yeah. And I just wanted to make sure I got everybody in, you know, not have a COVID brain moment. So Sarah Tuft. Olga Humphrey, Yvette Heiliger, Jackie Reingold, Cindy Cooper, and Cheryl Davis. So there you go. That's the current executive board committee. We put in a lot of hours and I wanted to make sure that they were acknowledged too. Yes. And thank you. Thank you to all of those um, powerful, awesome. Again, uh, can I say that they are all badasses too? Yes, I'm sure they are badasses. And badasses, please come on board. We need more. Mm-hmm. And um, and we're just trying to get more people interested in becoming active and do self-initiated projects. So yes, it's wonderful. As as of I I know that we're winding down in our interview, but I just wanted to say one thing I really appreciate about your work because I've I've gone on to MPX and I've been uh, reading the monologues. No, is that you tackle difficult subjects with humor and care. And I just think that that is a balance that can be hard to achieve and you do it really well. And I I just so appreciate that. So thank you. I know that that Lucy gave us a a bit of a writing prompt, but Lucy, you had mentioned another one. Okay. Uh, The prompt I was going to suggest uh, because we could all use more recognition and money um, is the embrace the diver- of different voices and diversity. And I guess because of our polarized nation and all the racism, there's this uh, contest that's yearly. They opt- the cash prize is $1,000. And you only have to come up with 20 words or less on what does embracing our diversity and how it could improve our world. I know it's a big thing to ask to only do 20 words. But if you do 20 words or less, you can get $1,000 and you can make a difference. So check out the website, which I'm sure you'll probably post or the link. And um, I thought it's just a fabulous way to uh, make a difference and get $1,000 cash. That's fantastic. Thank you. I wanted to plug a little bit A's for American, the YouTube video, because like this Sunday, the New York Times Magazine, they're talking about increased violence against Asian Americans and how difficult it is to classify something as a hate crime. So hate crimes are usually much higher than reported because hate crimes is very hard to prove what's really going on in somebody's heart. Asian Americans are often left out of the equation because they're um, statistically we're not as big percentage of the population and we're also not a homogeneous, you know, you've got all these different countries. So I would like people to take a look at that, help spread the word around that just because we look Asian, our faces are Asian, please don't 
target us or scapegoat us for the coronavirus. Don't kill us. You know, we're on your side. We want everybody to lead healthy, happy, prosperous lives. So that that's the one thing I'd like to plug, which goes along with the writing prompt about embracing our diversity. I'm trying very hard to push John and Yoko's Remember their imagine and how hokey. Oh, yeah. I remember thinking how hokey when I first heard is like war is over if you want it. And but the more I think about it, and the more I think about it is I get what they're trying to say. It's like we all have to do our part. And I don't think most of us want war. We don't want racism. So let's if everybody does their part, maybe we can make a difference. Maybe we can make it over. So my my slogan, because I don't want to steal from Yoko and John, is um, racism is over if you want to live. Come on, you guys. Don't you want to live? Get, you know, get, <laughs> back, get the vaccine, mask up, and then we can wipe this off and we can all live and do, you know, exercise our freedoms. It, there was something else coming up too, Lucy. You have something in Memphis, right? Yes, I am hoping to go. Hopefully it'll be safe. I won an artistic residency at Crosstown Arts in Memphis, Tennessee for next February through April. And they have a 425 seat theater. So I was hoping to maybe do a one woman show there when I get there, as well as work on um, some plays that require actors and try to find some local actors who might want to workshop. It's a, oh my God. I encourage you to apply and go. I think it's, I learned about this from my friend Sandra Jackson Opoku, who went there a couple years ago pre COVID, and she said it was fantastic. It's a lot of um, music and art, cultural history in Memphis, and she was able wow. to take advantage of it. And there, I'm, I've never been, and I would love to go see this, you know, the Civil Rights Museum, the Graceland. Of course, you can't go to Memphis and not go to Graceland. Beale Street, and of course, eat some ribs before I become vegetarian. Or because <laughs> 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 everybody seems to be vegetarian in their future. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, oh no, is that something coming for me? And um, so I look forward to doing that. I hope I get to go. It would be, it, it would be awesome to workshop plays on their feet again and see an audience live audience well we sh- we sure hope you do too because maybe we can even come out and see it like, we'll and I will go to memphis hey i'm telling you that's like our that's what that's we do our, now that's our thing that's what we've decided that hey playwright is traveling well that's fantastic you know if i do it we should time it so if you have material we can all three go on stage, okay? I'm gonna, that's my prompt to you two personally. Come up okay. with something. Why, why waste this opportunity? I mean, where? Oh, my God. Right? Let's do right. it. Right. Okay. And they have all a right. artistic community, like musicians and art painters and visual artists. So they all go to each other's shows. And um, I have a friend that I worked with. Uh, she's a director at the University of Memphis. And she's going to have actors and directors. We, let's do it, you Let's oh, do it. Oh, God. my God. Okay, Lucy, challenge can... accepted. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. out there. No, really, if you if 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 this residency happens for you, yeah. I'll totally go out. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then we'll yeah. the show about what it was like to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So uh, any any parting words, Mabel? Uh, I don't want I don't want to monopolize. I just want to say, Lucy, it was a pleasure meeting you and inspiring to hear your story, your words, your motivation. I I feel 
I feel like I took so much away from this conversation that I'm going to, that's going to lead me through the next few weeks. I have a, September and October are going to be, are going to be rough ones for me. A lot of stuff yeah. going on and I'm, yeah. and I'm taking your wisdom with me to, to get through these next few months. So thank you so much for, for joining us and for, for having this wonderful conversation with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I have a big fan of yours. So if you come to LA next time you come, let's, get together for, I don't know, something fun, not just coffee. Coffee's boring. Come on. (laughs) We can do better than coffee. (laughs) We can. Um, It would be really great if you were doing any comedy sets. Like, I would love to see that. We'll just go to your gym, Lucy. We'll just go go to your gym. gym. (laughs) Get us some some guest passes (laughs) and we'll do lunges with you and you can try out your material. (laughs) That sounds great. That sounds like a real date. I used to dread going to the gym, but see, that would make it, that would make up for it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, again, Lucy, thank you so much. Uh, I've, I already knew from the moment I was in class with you that I wanted to have you come on to the podcast and talk about all of the fabulous work that you do. Um, and we just so appreciate you spending time with us today. So th- thank you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing your name on the marquee. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Lucy. Oh, Wow. I'm so glad that we got to share space with Lucy today. Um, uh, I hope I hope we can make that Memphis trip happen. Oh, my gosh. I've never been be to fun? Memphis. You have. You've been to Tennessee. Uh, I have been to Memphis, but it has it's been it's been a good chunk of time. I'd love to go back. That's yeah, I think uh, I think we're going to make it happen. I don't know. It seems like the world is I think we're just we're just in that in that new that new life where COVID will be a part of our reality. And, uh, and you know, it's like the flu, we're just going to have to get used to it. And um, yep. so hopefully we can start making travel plans um, for the future. Cause I think we have some really great, we have some really great shows lined up that we need to get to Tori. So I know so, um, it's, it's time to move on. Uh, right. So yes. So that does it for us uh, for this week. We are on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, eh, still working on it. Um, and please subscribe. It is it is such a big deal for podcasters. Yes! If you subscribe, please. Yes. Yes, please subscribe. I'm I'm like I I still think it's crazy that we're getting new listeners, but we are. <laughs> I know. And, I, and we thank you. So again, um if you liked what you heard today, please feel free to share it, rate us. Um, review us and and keep on listening and tell your friends. Um, we are just super grateful for our guests and for you, audience. Thank you for listening. For you, without no audience, there is no show. Well, there <laughs> well, is. There it's, is. <laughs> but it's it's our moms. <laughs> it's our moms. Yeah. Thanks, mom. All right, everybody. Until next time, keep writing and uh, Tori, play us out. <laughs> Keep writing. Keep, Keep writing. writing. That's us playing us ourselves out. I don't know what's. I don't know. It's like Wayne's World. Yeah, combination of Wayne's World and, and some, some weird jazz interpretation. Oh, of, you know what it was like? It was a jazz interpretation of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> All right.